Okay, perhaps we should be, perhaps we should begin. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask about uh, recurring physical ailments. Mm-hmm. First of all, can you tell if they're psychosomatic versus versus pain, whether it's real? Mm-hmm. And then, how can you use med- meditation to to attack the, the cycle and perhaps stop it? Okay. So there's a question about um, ailments, um, particularly the difference between genuine pain, psychosomatic pain, and how can meditation be used to deal with that? Is it effective as a question? Yeah. Okay, well, of course, this is the, this is the area of, of what was known as mindfulness-based stress reduction. This is where it first came about, this whole movement of using meditation in America was... Um, developed by John Kabat-Zinn to deal with chronic pain, basically hopeless cases um, who had genuine physical chronic pain. And uh, the doctor's written off as basically they couldn't help any further. And this is where really the whole thing of the secular movement of meditation started. And to answer the question really about how this works with pain, well, one thing it doesn't do is take away the pain. Let's be very clear about that. It doesn't take away the pain. Um, If there's some damage to nerves or whatever, the pain is not going to go away. But what will change is the relationship with the pain. This is what you're actually changing. It's not the pain itself, but the relationship with the pain. Now, whether it's a psychosomatic pain or whether it's a real chronic pain... This is what will happen. The relationship will change. You will begin to hold it in a different way. Um, for example, and it's partly what we're relating to today, in the, or the last couple of days in scanning through the body, is in noticing unpleasant sensation, which is what pain is, a very unpleasant sensation, you learn to hold it differently in that you become less reactive to it. The more you begin to observe it, you can begin to hold it and probe it in a sense uh, by just holding it within awareness and it will change. The actual intensity of the pain will change. Now what this really means is we're ceasing to, for example, and this is only an example, um, have resistance to that pain. So in other words there is pain and then there is often things like resentment, anger, resistance, fear, worry, anxiety, put that in with genuine pain and you get something even worse. And so what we're actually dealing with here, and this is how meditation works, is actually dealing with all of the mental stuff that we're basically adding to the actual ailment itself, the actual chronic physical pain or even psychosomatic pain. Now, if it's psychosomatic pain, the chances are it will possibly go away. Yeah. Um, by keep on seeing it coming up, keep on holding it differently, and it might, and I say might, because there's no promissory notes about this, it might actually change qualitatively, if not go away entirely with that. So basically that's what we're doing with pain um, with this. Now this is done within very secular, as I say, programs, um, of people learning to actually work with their pain in, in um, a meditative way, 
a way that opens to it rather than contracts around it. You know, so it's the contraction that's the problem, and the contraction is all this mental stuff. And in a way, this is actually no different, I would say, to ordinary life. This is what we're doing to ordinary life situations, is, is adding lots of mental stuff to it. Um, it's really how do you like your life, with or without additives. <laughs> and the additives here, of course, are all the, the fears, the worries, the anxieties, um, the angers, the resentments, the jealousies, and everything else that we add just to ordinary situations we find ourselves in. And pain, I think, is just a very extreme example of that. So it's actually working, in, in a sense, in the same way um, by reorienting us towards something which has happened. This is the path of meditation in general. It's not trying to take away circumstances or take away thoughts for example, it's how to work differently with them. Um, this is what the path is about. It's not about um, some kind of utopian experience, which, um, and even nirvana is not a utopian experience. It still has to deal with the world as it is. And this is what we're learning to do. And so pain is a very good example of that, working with pain. Okay. If you're in a lot of pain when you're sitting, I presume this is, do you move or not? Um, well, the thing is to see how long you can stay with it. This is one of the basic things I said. Not, say, not saying don't move, but I'm not saying move immediately. Now, there's a very big difference, and I think often we can tell with, between pains that uh, are causing physical damage and pains which are not. Now, sometimes I doubt the wisdom, often, of Westerners sitting on the floor for long periods of time with crossed legs. We're simply not used to it. Um, you know, we were not born to it. Most of us take up these positions much later in life. Um, and as a consequence, actually, a lot of long-term meditators, and I have to hold my hand up here, uh, have induced knee damage <laughs> over the years. You know, like cartilage problems and all sorts of things, basically by um, straining the knees into a position which they're not used to because our hips are not loose enough often unless you do lots of yoga and things like this to really loosen up those joints. So I think we have to distinguish between what I call <clears throat> discomfort, which can be very unpleasant, and pain that you think is doing you physical damage. Now, I think if there's any hint that you think it's doing you physical damage, then move. I would really say that. Um, and if you are just in basic discomfort, see how long you can stay with it. Bring your attention to it. Breathe into the pain sometimes and find often that it will qualitatively change by paying some attention to it you know, rather than just resisting it. However, I will say one thing about this. Um, meditation is not supposed to be about pain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's better to get yourself into as comfortable a position as possible. And if that really does mean building your cushions up high, so you're like on a skyscraper, um, or sitting on a chair in order to reduce the chances of pain occurring, it's far better to do that than actually having to be shuffling around a lot during the sessions itself. 
So there's quite a number of issues really here. I, I think a lot of us um, tend to think that meditation is only about sitting on the floor, and it isn't. You can do it anywhere. You can do it lying down. If you've really got a severe back problem, many people who have severe back problems, that's exactly the, what I'd recommend, is actually you lie down and do it. Um, but do something that takes you away from thinking it's sleep. <laughs> like have your knees up in the air, or the other one is okay, have an arm up in the air. Hold up an arm for a while and then alternate it. Um, something which would distinguish it from sleep, because otherwise you know, the two get rather confused. But you know, I would actually say try not to be in pain. Now, aches and discomfort are going to come about, particularly in a retreat this length, where you're doing lots and lots of meditation over day, simply through not being used to sitting for these lengths of time. So you're going to get discomfort, often lower back, legs if you're sitting on the floor, um, but again, try and get yourself in as comfortable a position as possible to start with. You know, this will mitigate some of the inevitable pains that are going to arise. Try and get your hands in a good position. And a good thing, really, if you're sitting on the floor, is off, obviously to get your pelvis higher than your knees, a lot higher than your knees if you're actually sitting cross-legged. The other thing is um, often people get pains here right in the mid-back. Now I noticed, actually, you have your hands up high. So if anybody's getting that, the you know, good thing is to get a cushion, get a zafu, put it on there, and actually have your hands up so it raises the shoulders slightly and takes some of the strain off of the, off the, you know, the cervical vertebrae and the upper thoracic ones. You know, so you're actually beginning to um, help yourself. Another good trick, actually, if you're sitting on the floor, is to get a couple of rolled-up socks and stick them behind your knees, and it opens up the knee joint slightly, so you don't get so much pressure on the knee. That's another good little trick. Yeah, yeah. Just stick it behind the knee, just because just rolled up sock. That's all, um, and that will help to stop some of the inevitable pains that you get in your knees. But as I say, just really to finish off and reiterate what I said before: if you think it's doing a physical damage, move rather than not. If you, if you know it's just discomfort through sitting, sit through it if you can, for as long as you can. Okay? There, and then... There. Um, yes, this afternoon I was trying to look at um, where the, the intention to walk begins and to try and catch the beginning of the intention. And I started wondering about what is an intention and how does it differ from other mm-hmm. thoughts, um, other mind contents. And... Yes, this is a question about intentions for those at the back who can't hear it, and where does it fit in, for example, into the chain of dependent origination? Um, and the question was also wondering about where this, where where the, where intention fits in in regard to thought, um, how it differs perhaps from thought. Okay. Let's see if I can open this one up. Intention is absolutely important. It's vital in Buddhist practice. I mean, this is one thing um, I can say without equivocation. This is actually, really, this is what is behind the whole doctrine of karma. Because it's action with intention. This is what makes it ethical or moral action, is that you have an intention behind it. So as you can see, you can engage in the same action but often have different intentions, therefore the ethical moral outcome is quite different. 
Very crude example, but very simple example. If I'm driving my car and a rabbit runs in front of it and I kill it, then it's quite different from if I go out with a shotgun deliberately looking for rabbits to kill. As you can see, the outcome is the same. You get a dead rabbit in each case, but the intention behind it is quite different. One is the intention to kill. The other one was the intention probably to get from A to B or whatever. And this was just an outcome of doing that. So intention is vitally important. Intention is basically directed thought. And it's there almost in every act that we engage in. So much so that um, in Buddhist psychology, something which is this intention actually has a name in Pali, which is Yonaso Manasakara, directed wise attention. You know, in that, we're actually directing thought in a particular way to try and achieve a particular outcome. And this is what intention is in, in Buddhist thought. Um, another word, the most common word that's used for intention is chetana. And that takes place in every cognitive act. There is an intention in every cognitive act. So simply by directing my eye to looking at something, that's an intentional action itself. However, the bigger, wider sense of it is within, for example, the you know, um, moral acts, which we would call karmic acts, uh, that we are engaging in. Now, that big question of uh, dependent origination, I don't know how many people are here familiar with the chain of dependent origination, but this is um, a Buddhist explanatory device to try and describe the mess we're in. <laughs> That's probably the easiest way of putting it. And it really describes how samsara, this cyclical behavior, comes about. I'm trying to fill people in so this doesn't, I don't, hopefully don't lose you if I try to answer this question. Um, so it's describing, if you like, how we pattern every situation that we find ourselves in. In fact, I often, you know, I'm a sad sort of character, I often toy with Pali words and try to think of different ways of translating them. Um, because the received lexicon of words and ways of translating them often don't do them justice. Now, it's not entirely accurate, but one way of actually looking at this word, paticca samutpada, which is the actual Pali word, is to, to pattern a situation um, or just situational patterning. So we're patterning every situation and part of that patterning can be repetitive intentional action. Yeah. So in other words, we set up habits out of intentions yeah, because we want particular desired outcomes often in life. You know, to avoid the unpleasant, for example, and to gain the pleasant in order to do that, I've got to engage in volitional action, and those volitional actions sets up, set up habit patterns. These are technically known as sankharas. Um, they're formations that we create in the mind, um, which we continue to repeat. Not identically, because they're always changing subtly, but we continue to repeat with similar intentions again and again and again. So intention is there in the chain of dependent origination. Um, but it's there at the level of sankharas, and the chain goes roughly like this. Ignorance, sankharas. Sankharas is the formations that are coming out of delusion or ignorance. 
So out of not, in other words, um, accepting the way things are, deliberately not wanting to know, having a positive, um, if you like, misapprehension of the world and applying that continuously to the world, certain habit patterns arise out of that. Now we do this intentionally, we're forming them. The Tibetan iconography of this makes it very clear that we're actually forming them, that they're actually volitional, because it has a potter moulding pots on the iconography of, of this little bit on the wheel of life, showing that we are actually moulding our lives continuously through intention. So in many ways, what a lot of Buddhist practice is about, particularly the more the ethical side of it, is actually cleaning up our intentional acts. Knowing our intentional acts for a start off. You know, we have this expression in, in the West, don't we, certainly coming through psychodynamic um, psychotherapy, which is unconscious intentions. Well, the whole purpose of Buddhist practice is to make your intentions perspicuous, to make them as conscious as possible as to why you're engaging in particular actions. And that certainly means looking at repetitive habit patterns, which are there. And is volition the same as intention? It is. You've got, a, you've got a, a spectrum of words, really, which are used. Intention, will, volition. Those are all really the same word. And it's usually the same word in Pali that's used. It's either uh, Chetana or Manasakara. Yeah. There's a question at the back. Okay, well, that's an interesting one. I think everybody suffers from it from every so often. Christina Feldman, who's one of, well, actually one of the founders of Gaia House, has a wonderful, atta- a wonderful expression for this. She, she calls them hindrance attacks. <laughs> you know, you seem to get all the hindrances at once <laughs> that happen. And I think it's, I think it's a lovely expression. Um, and when that really happens, to really try and take it back, back, take the practice back to its simplest, which is really just concentrating, just using some concentration to stabilise the mind a little bit. When the mind drifts off, as it will do, because it's a kind of it's, you know, it's this expression that she uses, hindrance attack, then it will obviously keep getting pulled back. But every time it's pulled back, don't dwell with it. Just come straight back to the breath, as we were doing really on the first day um, of the practice. So you keep it really simple until you stabilise the mind and those thoughts start to be less oppressive. Then you can go back to the practice again. Yeah, yeah uh, there was another one. Okay, yes. <laughs> so one arm waving furiously. Um, I, I've got a question about self-consciousness. Um, <clears throat> mindfulness training is quite introspective and um, from my own practice I've become very self-conscious of certain things that I'm doing. So it's like how you can move. Is, is that part of the normal process to move from self-consciousness towards self-awareness? And how do you support that transition? 
Okay. Can you just explain how you're using the term self-consciousness here, if you can? Um, it's not a comfortable feeling. <clears throat> Yes. But it's certainly in my practice, I seem to have been through that a lot. Uh, and it's a really kind of transitory thing. Yes, it is a transitory thing. I mean, it's descriptive of a lot of meditative practice. In the initial stages, like learning anything, there is what you're calling a self-consciousness about it. You have to think about it a lot. Um, there's actually two words that are used in the text to describe this. It's called vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is um, applying yourself to something. And then there is vichara, which is sort of sustaining that application. And so initially you have to think about what you're doing. Like if it, if, you know, I'd presume probably most of you drive or have learnt you know, something recently but if you go take yourself back to learning to drive you had to think about everything so you weren't actually driving <laughs> you were thinking about driving most of the time then it gets a little bit easier but you're still having to sustain the application of thinking when do i depress the clutch and shift the gear stick and all the rest of it you're still having to do that so it's moved on a little bit and there's still self-consciousness there the open or what the sort of the self-awareness comes about when I'm no longer doing that, when it becomes much, much more automatic, the application of it. So I think it's just an inevitable stage that you go through in learning anything, actually. And meditation is no different. Uh, and the practices we engage in to learning just one of these practical things, like learning a musical instrument, learning a skill, learning how to drive, all of these are very practical. It's very interesting, actually, when we look through the early texts, through these texts that I've been drawing on on most of the teaching I've been giving, is that the Buddha always uses practical skills. He says it's just like, and I think I gave you the example the other night, just like a wood turner, knowing how to turn a piece of wood. Um, he says it's also just like, for example, and obviously shows India was very different in those days, it's just like a butcher as well, being able to actually divide up the, very, very skillfully the animal and cut it up into various parts. Well, in, situa- in situations like that, I think, again, you're seeing how the mind is operating. Self-consciousness is, and is very much operative in learning a skill until it becomes natural. In a way, when, you, when you're not conscious of the walking so much, I'm having to lift and place and lift and place. I just know I'm lifting and placing. 
It's like walking through a door. You don't have to think about what you're doing. You just walk through the door because you know you you turn the door handle and you open the door. When thinking arises, often it gets in the way. It blocks our basic apprehension of being much more. And so when there's thought there, and particularly this thought which I'm calling self-conscious thought, then it's blocking your integration into a real sense of being in the world and integration into it. And that really is the, is the state of self-consciousness. That's why it feels awkward. It has an awkwardness to it, a sort of fragility to it as well. Um, when that starts to drop away, you know, particularly in states of concentration, when it starts to drop away, you know you're entering greater states of absorption into the task that you're engaged in. Now, there's a big difference between, I might add here, between concentration and vipassana, between what's called samatha and vipassana. Samatha aims at something called ekagata, which is one-pointed concentration, whereas you don't get anything similar in vipassana. Vipassana is an open awareness to whatever is arising. So actually, all of the stuff that you're probably calling distraction that's taking you away from what you really want to do, which is stay with the breath or whatever it is, isn't distraction at all. It's part of the learning process. This is part of the insight process. Understanding that this stuff is coming in. This is why I've emphasized to you there's no failure in this. Because we're taking cognizance of the patterns of our mind, the kind of the cloud patterns that are there within our mind, which are constantly changing, but sometimes they will repeat and you will see them. And this is what you're learning. This is, this is the path of discovery about yourselves in this instance. So don't ever, please, in Vipassana, think of thoughts and what your mind wanders the way to as being distraction. It's not. This is part of the learning process. Yeah. Well, I was just going to make a comment to the person who's got a whizzy head, mm. um, and I, all I find is that if I do some whizzy physical activity, then the body and the mind can then calm down together. Mm-hmm. So if um, so, at the end of a busy day when you've been sitting and your head's all whirly, it just if I just do some physical activity, then it's much simpler, much easier to cope with it. I mean, the avalanche is sort of gone by then mm-hmm. to a more manageable rate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, physical activity is good for doing that. It doesn't work for everybody, um, but it is, it's can, can be useful um, to do that. But also just trying to settle and calm the mind a little bit by using something like concentration would be very useful. Yeah, and then... Me? Yeah. Uh, can um, wanting to wake up just become another craving? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is called a good one. <laughs> Actually, it's very, it's very interesting because there is a paradox in Buddhism um, in many senses because, as you probably gathered from what I was saying the other night about craving and desire, generally speaking, 99.9% of the time, all desire is considered to be that which creates problems. It will create dukkha for ourselves and create dukkha for others. However, there's one form which is actually uh, allowable, it's called Dhamma Chanda, which is the desire for the Dhamma, the desire for awakening, the desire to understand the way things are. Um, so, and the paradox is really that it's the desire that wishes to overcome desire. 
That's really what it's about. Now, I might say this is all extremely complex in the text, and I won't want to go into it, but, I mean, there is something like 16 different words for desire in, in the texts which try to indicate fine grades, some of which are sometimes can be good, because it's not saying all desire is wrong. You know, it can be directed towards good ends sometimes. Um, but the one that's absolutely um, always considered to be... Um, unwholesome is this word tanha which is this unquenchable thirst this this desire which is a kind of driven existential desire to try and fill up the vacuum you know to try and fill the hole that often we feel within within us this kind of vacuousness that we're attempting to fill up fill up it's actually about lack yeah, most of the most of what tanha is about is a feeling of lack. So we try and fill it up in some way. You know, identity is about we don't feel substantial substantial enough. So we try to create an identity. Often there is a hollowness to existence which we try to fill up with things and pleasures and distractions and all sorts of phenomena. So this is always considered to be unwholesome, but all these other words, which are well, pretty well the 13 versions of the other words, which mean desire, all have a wholesome quality to them, as well as an unwholesome quality to them. I suppose it's difficult with awakening, because um, I'm not sure what it actually is. I mean, unless you've had it, you don't really know what it is. I suppose you, 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 know, you get ideas and maybe illusions about what that's exactly why the Buddha basically refused to speak about it. He's basically trying to say, how can you understand what awakening would really be like to live it from the unawakened state? Now, I think we can surmise out of the text and we can make some pretty good hypotheses about what he's indicating by the term awakening. Well, we know, for example, that waking up is waking up to the way things really are, yata bhutan, which actually means to, to see things as they actually are, not to fantasize about them. So that's part of the awakening process. We also know the awakening process is based on um, a psychology which is not rooted in greed, hatred and delusion because actually the word nibbana means the going out, the cessation of the greed, aversion and delusion which sustain ordinary existence, ordinary unawakened existence. So there's kind of surmises that we can make about it, but of course none of us can know until you actually experience it. Yeah. Yeah, and then... <laughs> um, is, there, is part of the point of meditation to create a way of relating to the self or the body and the mind without the kind of apparatuses of self Without the apparatus of selfing, yes, it's to let go of the selfing process um, as being the fixed point around which all of your life orients itself. So it's a reorientation process. It's not saying there is no self, it's just saying we have to reorient ourselves in a way which takes cognizance of the fact that actually we are changing, that we are this verb form. I won't go into it again, but all the stuff I was saying last night that we are this changing phenomena and that there is no fixed point within us. Therefore, actually, we can move, if that is the case, into a much more what I call outward engagement with others and with the world because I'm not so fixated on my fixed point within me. 
you know, which has to be appeased and patted and all the rest of it and petted and looked after. Um, it's, it's giving us the opportunity, once we start to drop that selfing process as being the primary motivator behind our actions, to really, really engage with others, to come into a much more selfless relationship with others as well. So it's a complete reorientation process, what the path of meditation is. It's a much more realistic look at how we are as well. This is the other thing. It's about learning how we are in this world. That's what it is. Rather than that I am a thing. It's really always looking at how all of our mental processes, all of this stuff that we call self actually operates and seeing how it can be geared to what I call optimal functioning. <laughs> how we can function at our best in this world. I think the Buddha, you know, kind of the statue represents really nothing other than the optimal functioning of a human being. That's all. You know, it's not something superhuman. It's how we could function if we learnt to drop a lot of our selfish pettiness in this world. I could go on. This is a big question I could (laughs) expatiate on for a long time. (laughs) But that's basically what's involved. Yes. Well, the intention is a volitional intention which is generated in the mind. It doesn't operate in a vacuum. It operates in Buddhist psychology, again, with other mental factors. It's quite complicated, so I won't go into it. But it's supported by other mental factors as well. Um, but it's generated, in the intention is generated in the mind. And actually operates through the body. This is why I keep trying to emphasize to you when you set your posture at the beginning of a session, you're in a way setting your intention. Now, look, if, if I don't really, if I'm not really engaged, here's my intention for not engaging. <laughs> yeah, it really shows it, doesn't it? Often we see people's intentions by what they do a lot of the time. And by keeping, for example, the straight spine, holding the head in a particular way with the hands relaxed and so on and so forth, we're actually setting our intention to try, to try, it doesn't mean it's going to actually happen, to try and stay as awake and alert as we can for the session that we're engaging in. But the intention isn't something mysterious. It's actually operating within, if you like, a system which is the mental system, which is the mental system in Buddhist psychology is described in terms of 52 mental factors, uh, which all operate together, together with 121 different forms of consciousness. <laughs> now, add that lot together <laughs> in the various permutations that they can actually generate. Um, as you can see, you get a myriad of mental states that can arise, uh, together with varying intentions that can arise with it. So it's not as if it's mysteriously generated, it is supported. I mean, this would be a whole course in itself, just talking about this particular dimension of Buddhist psychology. 
Um, but it's actually showing you how um, we generate all these different mental states by consciousness coming in, in contact with varying kinds of mental factors all arising together. Yeah. So I'm sorry I was going to answer your question directly, but it's actually a very complex question. <laughs> well, it's you know the intention. I mean, the intentions themselves actually have to manifest as action. This is where we really see the intention is in the action. I mean, an intention as a latent intention really doesn't get much at all. Uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, which is a kind of much later development, they they talk about two types of bodhicitta. One is what I bodhicitta is the mind which is bent on awakening for the benefit of all beings, basically. So it's the intention to gain awakening so that I can genuinely help others. Um, but there's there's two versions of what's called bodhicitta. Um, one is what I call the holiday brochure version, and one is going on the holiday. You know, the holiday brochure version sits there and just reads the holidays and says, oh, wouldn't it be nice to do that? <laughs> so you can have this kind of bodhicitta that says, wouldn't it be nice to help all beings? <laughs> and then there's the other version of it, which is actually engaged in doing it, you know, generating that, um, which I call going on the holiday instead of just reading about it. Yeah, so actually, the real intention has to manifest as action, and that's when we really see it, and, and that's when it starts to have um, what's called fruits in terms of karma. Yeah. But you need some motivation before you get to intention. Well, the motivation and the intention are pretty well the same thing. Yeah, you can't really distinguish them so much. Yeah. So motivation and intention are very, very closely interlinked. I, I personally can't see how you can pull them apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, this might relate to the lady's question a bit earlier. <clears throat> but I've sort of observed in my own practice with doing the mindfulness of breathing and the walking <clears throat> and the body scan that some, something happens and it might just be sort of about you know, my lack of development or progress or something but what I notice when I'm trying to kind of focus if you like or put my focus on my breathing or on the walking is that I notice that I'm thinking about doing it mm. rather than being close to the experience. Yep. And so I so what I've deduced from that is it's about trying to get closer to the real experience or the actual experience. Yep. Um, and whether I suppose that is where you get to all the time or whether there always is this checking, you know, going on. Okay, well, yes, I mean, I can't, cannot but agree with you. That is exactly what the process is about. In the initial stages, actually, of doing so-called mindfulness, there's not a lot of mindfulness. <laughs> there's a lot of attention that we're trying to generate, but there's not a lot of genuine mindfulness. There is always that separation from the primacy of experience. And that's actually what we, as you rightly say, that's what we're trying to get close to, is the primacy of the actual, of the actual experience unmediated by things like language, for example. Or, or mental construction. Or mental construction and mental projection. You know, both things. Um, so it's an unmediated experience. It's a direct perception. This is what we're, what we're aiming at. Now, sometimes you'll get little glimpses of this 
you will have an experience which is very primary, might be just for a second or two, and then you're back into thinking about it again, thinking about having to apply. We're actually doing, these words I used in answer to one of the other questions, vitaka and vichara, application and sustained application is actually what we're engaged in a lot of the time. This is, this is really all of the early stages of meditation. Just keep applying yourself and keep applying yourself and keep applying. And that is a thought process that we're engaged in. You know, just constantly reminding ourselves what we actually should be doing here. So we're to a degree training our attention, but we still haven't got to mindfulness yet. Mindfulness actually in the tradition is a very elevated position to be in when you're mindful um, because it also invokes lots of other wholesome mental factors at the same time. However, in terms of... I actually wanted to make a comment about what you said at the beginning about progress and lack of progress. This is a very interesting one because um, sometimes we're not the best judges of what, in scare quotes, progress we're making. We really aren't the best judges of this. Um, sometimes we're often looking actually on the cushion to see if we're making progress. And actually, things have changed in our life, but actually the experience of sitting on the cushion is just as difficult as it was, say, three years ago. Um, But things have changed in our life, which actually means that that the practice itself affects your life in a bigger sense than just sitting on the cushion. Now, there's a very fun example of this. Uh, It's actually a friend of Mark Williams in Oxford, um, who was doing some mindfulness. He's one of the other professors working in the department. He was doing some mindfulness practice. And he said to his wife one day, he said, you know this mindfulness? He said, I really don't get it. And it's just, I, I think I'm just going to give up doing it. It's just a waste of time. And his wife said, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> So, so she had noticed some considerable changes that he hadn't. <laughs> and I think this is a, there's a moral to this story, which is don't always think you're the best judge of what's actually going on. Actually look around at the rest of your life and see what else has changed in your life before starting to judge it entirely by what's going on in the cushion. Because actually, inevitably, it's often a very tough time on the cushion. And what we're really doing, and this is why it's... You, you'll get easy periods, but then you're going to get rough periods. It really is, if you think of, if you like, the archaeology of the way that your history has constructed you over, you know, ever since you've been alive, then you've got kind of strata there, almost like, um, yeah, just like rock strata that you hit. Sometimes you'll hit a soft seam and things will go along smoothly, but then you'll start to hit some hard rock really, really hard rock and have a rough time of it. It doesn't mean there isn't change. It just means that you're dealing with more difficult, often quite deeply buried phenomena. And to bear in mind, again, using another metaphor there, but it's like taking the lid off something and everything is coming up once you get really seriously engaged in this project. Now, this can be scary, but it's also extremely exciting in the sense of the changes that it can, you know, that it can actually affect in your life. Uh, and remember, and this is really important, is this is not just for us, it's also for those of us around us, because we're in connectedness with others, and how I am affects others. Yeah. So, you know, 
I just uh, just to sort of put that in as a caveat. You know, please don't think you're the judge of of what's necessarily happening. Is it not better sometimes not to think of it in terms of progress? Because um, I think just sort of thinking uh, it's, it's difficult to measure it sometimes. I'm just thinking when I started meditating, the thoughts seemed to get. I seem to have more for what's going on um, the more I meditate. I think it's just because I was more aware of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, when, I, I could have, I could have thought, oh, this, this is getting worse, it's not getting hmm. any better. Yeah. Well, actually, that's true. I don't know if everybody heard that. You know, um, you're saying that when you start meditating, you discover that you've got more thoughts you know, when you actually start meditating than you had before. So the assumption could be that things are getting worse rather than better. But actually, that's not the case. What actually you're doing is becoming more sensitive, more attuned to what is actually going on. Now, you can either be, have that in a sort of blind sense of going on and you're not aware of it, or you can be aware of it. Now, if you're aware of it, we can then start to do something about it. If you're not aware of it, these things will continue to operate through you fairly blindly. You know, and I mean, I'm sure we've all had this experience, haven't we, when we've done or said something, almost like Freudian parapraxis, you know, what we usually call Freudian slips. You know, when we've done or said something, and you think, where the hell did that come from? You know, and it's usually come out of some deeply buried strata that you've been unaware of in your, you know, in your psyche. And what this process of meditation is doing is really unearthing this stuff. Now, some of it's not pleasant. Um, let's, let's kind of just own up to that. It really, some of it isn't pleasant. And it's pretty difficult stuff to look at. But far better, I think, to look at it than have it work and operate through you um, without any awareness of it. And to continue to stumble and fall and make the big mistakes that we often do because I have no awareness of where it's coming from. So this is actually beginning to become aware of where a lot of the things that drive our intentions and our volitions come from. But not in an analytic way. We're not going back and deliberately trying to resurrect the past. The past comes up in the present. So we are, when we sit on our cushions and our seats, our past, our present and our future all in one go, in this process of meditation. Because how I deal with what's coming up from my past, in my present, if I don't deal with it, and it goes on blindly, then it will become almost a deterministic future. If I do deal with it, then that future looks very different. Yeah, I think 
I think that is the case. Talk about unmediated perception and the relationship between that and poetry and suggestions being made that perhaps it's, you know, when we try and put it into words, a poetic language, which gets very close to the experience, um, but that follows later than the experience itself. That's right. I mean, I think, I mean, the wonderful thing about, let's you know, take your example, I mean, the wonderful thing about poetry is it does often give us glimpses of that unmediated experience. It does give us glimpses of things. I mean, I think one of the power of art, not all, but certainly of poetry, is to, in a degree, estrange us from the ordinariness of experience. You know, we think we understand experience, and then along comes a poet and gives us a poem about something which appears to be very mundane, but it's, it's written and composed in such a way as to make us feel we don't know the object any longer, the thing that we're supposed to be seeing. You know, when you get Rilke writing about flowers, for example, um, I mean, you find that they're kind of flowers you've never seen before, just like you know, looking at a Van Gogh painting of something. There's an intensity to the experience that I think um, mostly we don't have in ordinary linguistic experience at all. So I think it shows us something about that. Um, and I think there is a great power to, to poetry to do that. But it's still not that experience. It's still not the experience itself. And that's what we're trying to get through to, to break through to in... in meditative practice is that unmediated access to the primacy of our experience. Because when we're in language, we're already at a distance from it, already stepped back from it slightly. But also, you're saying that um, in that experience, if you start adding language, Mm. you're putting a distance from the experience. Yes, yes, we are. We start to do that. Now, in the training stage, you actually do use language. In the training stage, this is exactly what you're doing because you're noting and you're often labelling what is there. And this is very effective. It's just like learning anything. You know, It's like if you are trying to learn something and remember it, it's often good to actually write it out, what you're trying to learn to remember, because the words somehow fix it in your mind. And this is trying to at least get us to recognise elements of our experience as they come through, so we recognise fear, and where I go, perhaps go internally, fear, anxiety, um, ill will, desire, you know, whatever it might be arising, until they eventually start to drop out. Now, in the, in the texts and on much of the commentarial tradition, it says that this labelling process that we use just naturally falls away of its own accord. The more we get attuned and accustomed to observing... There's no need to use the words any longer. It's again a bit like that skilled manual worker who's doing something. In the training stages, they probably have to use lots and lots of language to learn what they're doing. But the skill comes in when I don't have to think about it in that way anymore. I'm really in tune with the grain of the wood if I'm a carpenter or something, working with it, not having to think about it. Often using our senses to sense you know, how to utilise that piece of wood or whatever it might be. And in a way, that's what we're trying to become, extremely skilled at working life. 
working life just as a skilled craftsperson would work life or work the medium that they are involved in. Okay, yeah, one more question. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the interview panel? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's. I mean, I've been involved in this. I just. I mean, just. I've been involved in Buddhist practice for forty-one years. Um, I started very young when I was seventeen by travelling overland to India and living in India for quite a long time and training with Tibetans for many, many, many years before eventually going to Sri Lanka and training in Sri Lanka as well. So I had experience of two major Buddhist traditions, which was the Tibetan tradition and the Theravada tradition as it was taught in Sri Lanka. And really, this is what, in a sense, what I've been doing over about 41 years is actually being involved either in studying and um, for a long period of time and then eventually teaching. So were you a monk? Yes, I was. Yeah, for quite a number of years in the Tibetan tradition for a while and then in Sri Lanka as well. Yeah. And I don't think monasteries are rosy places, by the way. (laughs) They're not. Uh, Tibetan monasteries in particular are extremely noisy. You know, I slept for three years with earplugs in every night. <laughs> um, so, but the, medita- the training is extremely good because part of, the, part of my Tibetan training was in, in dialectical debate. Um, actually, six, days, six hours a day for six days a week, we'd go out in the debate courtyard and debate material um, to do with um, Buddhist thought and, and, and practice. And that was part of the training, which actually starts to sharpen the mind. You know, it starts to be very useful way of sharpening the mind. And then in Sri Lanka, it was much more meditative practice and studying Buddhist psychology, really, which is why I went there. So. <laughs> but it's a long story, and I don't want to know. <laughs> okay, perhaps we should draw this to conclusion. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.